CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach to accounting and rise to each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills. CTBK goes above and beyond by lending helping hands in the Buffalo and Niagara community through volunteer work and donations and has partnered up with Victory Sports for 2020 and 2021 to keep kids in the community active. The professionals at CTBK are determined to help individuals and businesses succeed. Whether a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400, and see what CTBK's one-team approach can do for you. Welcome to Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with Jonah Bronstein of the illustrious Bronstein Sports Plus, which has outlasted yet another media outlet. News that uh, the Messenger uh, is folding uh, last week, or I guess I should say two weeks ago, we heard uh, some pretty ominous updates coming out of Sports Illustrated. So it's been a pretty, probably a pretty gratifying run for the launch of Bronstein Sports Plus that you're still uh, thriving and, um, and uh, getting it done. And surviving, we we're not growing, we're not getting better every day, but we are not getting worse, and we're not regressing, and we're not shrinking. And in today's media climate, that is a win. A win you is still a win. have you still have your one employee, and uh, I think that's that's to be commended. Maybe we can even get an intern. Well, sure. I, you could probably talk to uh, CTBK, CPAs and business consultants, uh, because they are, uh, even though it would not be uh, an employee situation, you know, with the laws, labor laws, you know, interns now, I don't know, doing it for college credit isn't uh, uh, not just an automatic rubber stamp anymore. You might need to pay, you need to bring it, you know, you're going to have to 1099 or something like that. Maybe even W2 this, this intern, it'll be, uh, I think that you should reach out to CTBK and, and, uh, find out what you should do there. I think it would be good. I think it would be good for slow growth because knowing you, you don't want anything fast. If you're going to grow, it's going to be at a, at very slowly, if at all. Well, one thing I would love is if the intern was a listener of this show, whether it was a college student or a recent graduate or even somebody that graduated long ago. Jerry from Elmo's, I know, watches this show. He would be the ideal intern candidate, but you know he's got a lot of other things going on, I believe. But I'm open to older interview interns. There would be no ageism here. There's some sports writers that I love and respect that are out of the game at this point. And if they want a way back in, uh, I hope that this is a potential opportunity for them. Not Jerry Sullivan. I don't want people to think that when you say Jerry at Elmo's, that's not Jerry Sullivan. That's a different Jerry. Although it sounds like you might be hinting at Jerry Sullivan. So you could have maybe two Jerry's on your staff. Sure. If not specifically Jerry Sullivan, a Jerry Sullivan type and, and, you know, there are many of our friends and, in my case, mentors that are no longer in the sports media atmosphere or ecosystem. And, you know, I'd love to find a way to get them back. I think Bob DeCesare would make a find Jonah Bronstein intern. I think you should maybe reach out to him. 
I'm sure he'd be all for it. Um, Amy Moritz, perhaps. Um, who else? All good suggestions. Bucky Gleason. Bud Bailey's still working a lot, but, uh, you know, I, I respect him and his lacrosse knowledge. and Ernie expertise. Green. Ernie Green would be wonderful. Jack Carlos. Tim Schmidt. Jack Goods. Jack Goods, another good suggestion. This reminds me now of people when they just spam names of, like, 90s wide receivers and 80s NBA players or whatever. Yeah, it's people we that. miss. People we miss working with. Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, I didn't intend to get into this. You know, we go have our little silly intro here where we make up this alternate reality of Jonah uh, Bronstein or uh, Enterprises or Bronstein Plus or the new Bronstein Times, whatever it is. And we have this metaphorical discussion that really goes nowhere. But yeah, what we just did there, we went down a little rabbit hole of like people we people we miss working with, uh, which is a shame. And it is, uh, you know, we... Uh, I think journalists, like a lot of professions, uh, we uh, rely on gallows humor to help get us through some of the bleaker times. And with everything that is going on in sports journalism, journalism in general, but sports journalism with places closing down and newspapers getting smaller and, uh, you know, the Los Angeles Times was another big one uh, recently. I mean, there are some institutions that you thought were untouchable, let alone a uh, you know, the messenger, which went through $50 million in startup cash in a year and just totally flamed out. And one of the worst, um, you know, media or internet startup stories, uh, you could even imagine hiring all kinds of highly respected journalists away from, there's no such thing as a safe job anymore, but safer environs, uh, luring them away. Uh, for the hope of something new and and exciting and then to find out one year later that you're out of a job and no severance and no warning it's it's scary and i i'm sure that i won't escape this uh, i don't think any of us ever really do um i've 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 avoided it so far uh but it's it's the business that you're in uh almost like i guess being a a coach right you uh it's a transient world, especially if you're not the head coach. Assistant coaches come and go. You're interchangeable parts in many ways. You're trying to move up, and you end up going to a situation that uh, doesn't last, uh, or you feel stuck because you're in a good organization, but you can't move up. And yeah, it's um. Anyways, I don't. I'm not comparing myself to to a coach or journalist to coaches, but it's just it has that feel to it where I think that especially in journalism, even if you go to one of the fine journalism schools, Syracuse, Northwestern, Arizona State, Missouri, you're probably going to have to move around a lot before you settle in on the job. Maybe it's more like a kicker. Kickers are like that too, right? They uh, they they never really seem to make it with their first team. They they bounce around. They're on, they're on perpetual tryouts uh, over the course of the season. They're working out, trying to stay in shape at their high school uh, football field uh, because they have nobody else to work out with, hoping for a call for a tryout. They end up on a practice squad, uh, hanging out with this team for two weeks while the regular kickers got a got an ankle injury. And yeah, it's uh, anyways. Now I'm down two rabbit holes. 
No, well, I like this rabbit hole. So let me ask you this. Did you see what Jeff Perlman said? And I think it was a video on X Twitter. And then there was a lot of reaction to it. If you did, I'd like your reaction to that. And if you didn't, I'll just present the question that he addressed as to what you what advice you would give or might you actually give to your students or young people getting into the business who are seeing all of this and, and you you've had a lot of success. Right. So how do you get to where you are from the beginning these days? I don't know how I would. Um, there was a little, the where was way more structure when I got started and I made it up as I went. So um, even though I was a self-taught journalist, I went to school for sports management. I didn't take any journalism courses uh, in college because we didn't even offer it. Baldwin Wallace had one journalism class. It was journalism 101. I didn't even take it because by the time I knew I wanted to be into it, I've already kind of learned and went beyond the journalism 101. I knew it was going to be a waste of time. Um, but even not coming from a journalism background or a journalism school where you get the internships or you have your foot in the door situations uh, coming from a, a, you know, those, um, established journalism institutions. Um, I was still able to map a course and what I did was, you know, started off covering high school sports for a small paper, uh, and constant, I was ambitious. I was constantly applying for jobs that would be an improvement, whether it be improvement in the job, meaning the beat, uh, maybe I go from colleges or from high schools to colleges, or colleges to pros, uh, or the paper being bigger, covering high schools, uh, which is my first step was leaving a small paper in Northeast Ohio to go to the Boston Herald, also to answer phones and cover high schools. So the job itself was kind of a step back, but it paid more. And it was the Boston Herald. It was a major market. And then I became an assistant sports editor at a, at another small paper back in Ohio. And then I went out and covered high school sports in Las Vegas. And then it was college sports in Las Vegas. And then it's, you know, all the big boxing events. And, you know, then I became their number two columnist. And uh, so you move up, it was constantly moving up. Uh, and then to the Buffalo news where I would also cover colleges, but then some pro sports, some bills, some Sabres. And then a year later, I'm covering the Sabres full time. I left for a smaller paper, the Palm Beach Post, but that had probably a much bigger sports budget and covered the NFL. So it was kind of like I was always in some ways, either the size of the paper or the the gig was bigger than the one I had before. I was never taking a step back. Um, and then from the Palm Beach Post to ESPN, then from ESPN to Buffalo News investigative reporter. And then I kind of, I guess I kind of finally took a step back in my career when I stopped being the investigative reporter at the Buffalo News to be Bill, a Bills reporter again, because of the, Alan Wilson had died and Rodney McKistick had gotten busted for plagiarism and, um, and they needed me. And Lisa Wilson, who I loved working for, uh, was in a bind and I had covered the NFL. So um, I don't know how much of that could happen because papers are so small. The, the, the community paper doesn't really exist. The, the 20,000 circulation paper that covers high school sports predominantly and then maybe some college and gives you a taste of the pros through a column or something like that. That's where... 
that's where I started. And that would be the Tonawanda news. That would be, oh shoot. What was that chain of papers that went out of business? They were similar to the B. The sun, the sun papers. Well, there were the sun papers, but they're also, they were mostly based in like, there was a Chictawaga one and a, the Metro Community News. Metro Community News, which doesn't exist anymore. So a lot of their shrinking going on. Um, those jobs used to be available. You would show up or you know send a, a letter back then or send a resume to the sports editor and say, I'm willing to cover high school football games for you on Friday nights. And that was your foot in the door. And now that doesn't happen anymore. You don't you don't get a chance to do that because those those platforms don't even exist. Um and so I, I think that you do still have the uh, the blue blood J schools that can place talented young writers into a situation, but the guy like me who's trying to make it up as he goes, uh, I don't I don't know I don't know what advice I'd give him. Uh, I, I start over and go to a, jur a journalism school, I guess. But even then, it's I don't know. It's tough. It's tough. You have to be really ambitious. Now, getting back to what you were saying regarding um, Jeff Perlman, his the main takeaway was make yourself indispensable, which is true. But that only gives you a shot. That doesn't guarantee anything. You can make yourself indispensable by having uh, video skills and taking your own photos and doing a podcast and uh, writing all kinds of different things. You're writing features. Maybe you're trying to break some news, however, whatever that would be on your beat. Um, you are, you know, notebooks and doing all the things that you can do to make yourself, quote unquote, indispensable and still get abused. Uh, and that's what we're hearing with some of these stories coming out of the messenger where you start to become a content mill. Uh, you're just churning out stories. Uh, and uh, the one writer, I, I, the names, uh, I apologize, I'm not remembering the name, but he had a thread about how he was writing 600 things, or he wrote over 600 things within the past year. And he says he has no clips uh, to show for it because he, it was all aggregated. It was all, it was, a, again, it was just a paragraph factory. And so an employer, once they have you on staff and you need to make that employer happy and you're worried about your job and you know that this is a precarious career path to begin with, um, you can you you can make yourself pretty vulnerable. It's to go ahead and make yourself indispensable and still get fired, uh, still get laid off. The company's still going to close. So I know that that's a pretty grim prognosis for it but just being indispensable is just reducing your risk it is not any kind of career path it is not an it is not even no i mean that, that's that's just almost like yeah you got to know how you know, got to know which words go in which order you know it's almost like a basic element to getting into uh into journalism now um but it's it's it, it's tough because when I when you start out, that's almost part of the eh, you can look back on it with in some romanticism now, 
you know, and we still do when sports writers get around the bar and we start talking about, oh, I have my first things that I covered. First thing I ever covered was a a weekend, two or three day long summer. Well, of course, it was baseball and it was a tournament and it was ages like coach pitch up to, you know, 11 or 12 year olds. And I got paid 20 bucks to cover this thing. And I was out there, you know, going around. I took pictures. I think I might've gotten paid extra to take the pictures. Um, I maybe got 40 bucks total, 20 for the pictures, 20 for the, for the story. And there's baseball going on all over the place. And I want, it was my first assignment. So I was out there all day. I probably made, well, you want to factor in whatever I got for lunch. I probably lost money that day. Um, being out there or by the hour, maybe I, maybe I paid a dollar 50 an hour. Um, and, but that was kind of the, the entry fee, you know, that was my education. I didn't have the, I needed these assignments to build a portfolio and to show an editor that I was worth hiring for the next assignment and the next assignment. And then when there was an opening on the staff to consider me for a full-time job and, I mean, you look at it now and it, it that's a business model, though, for some of these companies where they bring you in and they work you to the bone. We've even seen it on ads. I'm sure you've seen it, Jonah, on ads for a place that says we want you to come in and work and you need to have a minimum. You know, they give you the minimum uh, requirements for you to take this job. College graduate uh, experience as a on deadline. Uh, and you're going to be expected to write, you know, and it just doesn't add up. You're expected to work for free. And it's basically for the honor of getting your byline on this website, we are going to let you write for us. Um, and so to me at 52 years old, I can look at that and say, absolutely not. I'm never going to give my work away or be a, be taken advantage of like that. But it's almost like you have to, uh, in, in this, in this, uh, era of journalism, and it's it's like free labor out there. And if you don't do it, then you're really hurting yourself unless you have um, certain qualifications, maybe even a master's degree. I don't even know if that helps you anymore. I think master's degree in journalism only helps you if you're getting a job like in high management or academia or something like that. I don't think a master's degree would help guys like you or me. Um, I would agree with that. And I would say, as I've been told, and the advice I would give to many people is that if you have a journalism undergraduate degree and you want to get a master's degree, you should get it in something else because that journalism degree is going to get you as far as a degree probably would in journalism other than teaching and maybe yeah, get a degree in business or economics or whatever. Even if you're a sports writer, that would look good. I mean, with everything that sports writing is today. It's not just sports. I mean, if you had, uh, if you had, if you wanted to be a sports writer and you had an MBA, you know, you, and you had, you know, the, the, the basic skills to do it, you'd be very attractive to a sports editor, uh, because, uh, business is, uh, such a major part of, of sports coverage. Yeah. I know I, I talked for a really long time there. We actually get good feedback when we talk journalism. Uh, now, maybe we don't. Hey, by the way, if you've listened this long, listen to me drone on, please, uh, I, I implore you, uh, subscribe to Tim Graham and Friends. Click the like button, comment, subscribe. Um, 
rate it, drop a note in the comments. We had a, quite a few comments last week. Guy wanted to know if it's uh, if I'm getting paid or I don't know what it was. Yeah. Oh, if I if I'm afraid I'll lose my credentials if I if I criticize Sean McDermott, uh, which you know me and the Bills. You know I'm the big. Uh, I've always been known as a bootlicker when it comes to Bills coaches and front office. Well, and also I get where that sentiment comes from, and I think maybe there's a latent feeling of that among people on the beat. And I do think there's a belief from many people outside of the press box, if you will, that think that's the case. But I can't think of anybody who's ever had their credential revoked over criticism of the team or Sean McDermott. And I know a lot of people that have criticized the team, even in this season and recent times, and there was no threat of loss of access, at least straight up access. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a second. That is a funny thing. You know, and I guess it's, it's, um, you know, media, um, shoot, there's a phrase for it. And, um, uh, media literacy, media literacy is at an all time low. And I think that the takeaway so-and-so's credentials line is, I, I don't know if people really believe that that's, that's, that happens. Uh, you know, the so-and-so, uh, you know, I, I didn't, uh, I asked Stefan Diggs the question about his brother, uh, tweeting, uh, sass, uh, at the bills and Josh Allen and, you know, you should lose your credentials or me asking, uh, Sean McDermott, if he's considered anybody else calling the plays, uh, other than Ken Dorsey, I, take away his credentials. Like, what? Again, I think it's where we are in terms of fragility and hatred of the media. I mean, people, I, I, I cringed when I saw somebody complaining about the media hotels in, in Las Vegas are the Luxor and the Excalibur, which are pretty cheesy hotels. But if you're going to be complaining or, or or if, I mean, it's just a bad look. Be like, I'm going out to Vegas on the company dime to cover the Super Bowl, and I can't believe I'm staying at the Excalibur. I'm going to have to walk 10 minutes to get to the, to New York, New York, or the MGM grand. You know, it's, uh, I just found that funny. Nobody's ever going to, nobody's ever going to sympathize with the media, especially when we're whining about travel accommodations. Um, but the whole concept of yank is credential, take away the credential. And so I'm going to ask you, do you, can you think of anybody who's lost their credential? Now I have to rack my brain in my 30 years of doing this and think of, Maybe somebody who, I don't know, but nothing's coming to mind. It's certainly nobody who's ever worked in the mainstream accent, right? I mean, I don't know. You probably know maybe more examples outside of this market of where it has happened. And maybe it can happen in subtle ways. Like somebody who was stealing or somebody who was caught, you know, not working for a publication or like a fraudulent... uh, you know, misrepresenting themselves working for one company and wasn't working, you know, it's like something really weird and usually something on the fringe. There's outlets and this has affected certain people that don't get credentialed by the pro sports organizations, bills and sabers and certain people that have covered the team for a long time have been unable to regain credentials because of where they work or where they no longer work. Right. That's, I don't think the same situation here. No, we're Although, talking about somebody who upsets right. the team and they take away your credential. 
I mean, I can it think doesn't of happen. two or three examples. I'm even reluctant to name the people involved. One of them is Jerry Sullivan, who never had his credential revoked, but might have, um, you know, at some point in with what happened with him a year ago, there was some talk about that. And the only other one I can think of is Andrew Kulik at Art Voice, and that was for something he wrote, but it was not criticism of the team in the same way. It wasn't the same That's right. I forgot about that. About. But again, it falls in line with what I was saying. A more of a, you know, not a mainstream outlet, not a professional journalist, not somebody who does it for a living, not somebody who is there, you know, if, and I'm sure if Art Voice pushed back on it, maybe Art, you know, I'm not even sure what Art Voice is anymore as a publication. I, I mean, I used to read it cover to cover. I loved when it came out every Thursday, but I don't know what it is, what iteration it's in. Anyways, but if something like Art, if Art Voice would have pushed back, he probably would have gotten his credential back because it's based mostly on the outlet. And it's a conversation that a lot of writers have had. And I've, I've counseled some people have come to me saying, Hey, I want to start my own website. Uh, what do you think? And I'm like, well, you got to check with the bills to make sure you're still going to get access. You get access now for, uh, because you work for the, you know, uh, the, the, the Buffalo times do. you work for, I'm trying to, I was trying to come up with a cheeky fi fictional outlet, but you work for this publication. They're going to credential you. But if you go out on your own, they, that's what happened with Jerry Sullivan and Bucky Gleason. When they went to the Maven, nobody knew what the Maven was. And so that's why they didn't get a credential. That's what happened with Tyler Dunn. When he went out on his own, it wasn't because, of anything he wrote, it was because he worked for himself and he had no structure of a business in terms of an editor or a publisher or, uh, or that type of thing. And that is something that some teams don't seem to care. The Buffalo bills had established a long time ago that and the Sabres prior to that, I'm going back to when Mike Gilbert was in charge of uh, communications with the Buffalo Sabres, uh, you needed to have a, a boss. You know, you needed to have a company that you worked for. So there are those types of things. So they, they, they didn't lose their credentials. They changed jobs. Uh, and their, their, whoever they were writing for, their outlet didn't warrant a credential. Um, so there are, there are people who cover the bills who don't deserve a credential, but they work for a company that you need to credential. And so I'm not going to name names, uh, but. You know, there are people there who kind of just waste everybody's time and you don't even know where their work appears, um, but they get a credential and, um, but they've never gotten theirs yanked, uh, no matter what difficult question, or if you think that they ask a silly question, uh, this happens at the Sabres too. There are people that they just don't like dealing with because they don't like the questions that they ask, but you can't take away their credential because they work for somebody. I, and I think that's the way it's supposed to be because the other side of that coin, to bring it back to what we originally talked about, that's how columnists or opinion makers can do their job is to have these outlets supporting them and that you don't credential individuals, you credential outlets. And if the local newspaper or the television station sends a commentator or somebody to do commentary, they want that and you're protected because without that, there might be more situations of if you're too critical of the team, you have trouble getting a credential in the future or you possibly have a credential revoked. Um, so the, the 
responsibilities on the outlets to send the right people, qualified people, and approach the job in the right way. And if there's complaints about the questioning or the content that's being created from the access, you complain to the editor or the sports director or the news director or the boss and not necessarily the individual doing the work. Yeah, I'm even I'm trying to think so that, yeah, that's another wrinkle. Has there ever been something where you recall, uh, let's say, a team PR staff calling up an outlet and saying, you can keep coming down here and covering us, but that person's not allowed here anymore. I can't think of a really specific one. People believe nothing comes to mind. Well, well, people believe maybe we can talk about this. People believe, and some people probably believe this affected you. People believe Jerry Sullivan and Bucky Gleason were fired by the Pagulas for their commentary and their style of column writing. I don't think that's the case. In fact, I, I would maybe report that that wasn't directly the case. There might have been some emotional crossover between that belief and what actually happened. But both of both Jerry and Bucky and yourself and many people took buyouts or you left on your own for different reasons and were not pushed out or were not eliminated by the Bill Sabres, public relations, ownership, Pagula family, PSE, or, or any of that conspiracy that some people believe in. Yeah. And I wasn't in those meetings with Jerry and Bucky, but I believe them with what they told me and from what other people over the years have uh, what insights that they've given me into management's thinking. And, you know, just because we're talking about it, we'll just say it one more time. Um, they had their columns taken away from them and they were not going to lose their jobs. They were going to become feature writers. Um, they believed it was insulting that they were to lose their columns um, it would have been a bit of a, you know, a, that's a personal thing to live in that Bucky's from here and to, to lose your column is, is pretty embarrassing. Uh, it's almost a being punished. And, uh, as a, you know, to, uh, you know, on principle, I, I think I'm pretty sure Bucky was the first one to take the buyout. Again, wasn't fired. He voluntarily took the buyout. And I think Jerry said, well, I'll, I'll do it too. Jerry was closer to retirement. I believe how that's happened in terms of the order of it. Um, but I don't think it was any kind, there was no directive from the Pagulas. Um, but they had worn themselves out with management. And I'm talking about uh, the editor-in-chief, Mike Connolly, and the sports editor, uh, uh, Josh Barnett. And they grew tired of reading the columns from these guys that were, um, they, they become abrasive. I mean, that's what their column style was, which was fine and very entertaining and good, but I, I don't mean abrasive. I mean, repetitive is probably where I'm going with that. They were, they were starting, I think there was maybe a little lack of self-awareness and this was at a time of the tank. This was still the, you know, the, the bills very much involved with the, you know, still in the drought uh, or fresh out of it. And everybody was just worn out by everything. And I think some, it was time to zig or zag. And the, the, every column was about the tank. Every column was uh, about how the tank was wrong. Every column was about the, it was just, it was over and over and over. And I think there was fatigue uh, from the readership. I think there was, but there was, uh, 
the most unfortunate part of this is that there was fatigue from management at the Buffalo News and the audience would have eventually come around and Jerry Sullivan would be writing glowing columns about Josh Allen right now. I'm sure he'd be taking uh, Sean McDermott to task and doing all kinds, but, but there would be all kinds of positive things being written uh, about the Bills, especially maybe not the Sabres. Um, but yeah, it got tiresome and that's all it was. And they, uh, management didn't have, uh, wasn't able to handle it deftly enough to try to say, you know, I don't know if there would have been ways to do it uh, without Jerry and Bucky pushing back because uh, they're both very prideful guys and, and rightfully so it's, it's in their persona. It's what made them great columnists. Um, but could there have been a way to say, Hey, look guys, uh, you know, to, to, to talk about let's can we think of some other things to write about uh can we can we chill uh for a little bit and it got to be i mean as for as much as i loved reading their work i i stopped reading them too uh because it was just like i've read this already and um you know i think that there are there are it, it becomes uh, you know i i think that uh you know, Tyler Dunn is falling into that a little bit now with, I can tell by the comments that he receives based on whatever he does. I mean, people have stopped reading the, 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 um, reading the actual material and they just, it's, there's an assumption of what the, the point is and you suck, uh, you know, this, uh, you stop shitting on McDermott. Why do you always do this? Why does everything pay? Why does a story on Dan Campbell, a pander and everything on, on Sean McDermott is, is an evisceration. Uh, why is because you get access, this guy's good and you don't have access here. So that guy's bad. And so people have already built up. I mean, you, you gotta know when to zig when everybody thinks you're going to zag. And when you get into a situation where it's just zag, 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 you, you know, I think that's what Bucky and Sully got caught up in with um, with management. I mean, the readership can pound salt, you know, as, that's weird to say, but they'll come around that ha that comes in waves. You know that they were tired of the Bills losing. They were tired of the Sabres sucking. They were tired of the coaching changes. They were tired of everything. And you take it out on the messenger after a while. And um I think you need to sometimes be aware of who you are as the messenger uh, and have some self-awareness regarding, um, again, I'll use the, to, to do something to, to not, to not be, to not come off as contrived or self-indulgent. Your thoughts. Uh, well said, although I was, a big fan of Jerry Sullivan and Bucky Gleason's writing up until the end and miss their columns. And Oh, they're, they're sorely missed now. I'm just saying that at that moment, it was, I don't think they wore themselves out in the market or it, I just think that it was a crucial time where management needed to say, we got your backs here. Um, you can write whatever the hell you want, but we're getting a set, you know, and having some sort of ability to massage it and say, but you might want to consider it, you know, writing some things here because people are getting tired. It's it, we're all getting tired. And can you, you know, and the idea of 
journalism or the media is to come up with things that people haven't thought about or haven't had hammered into their ear hole, uh, you know, with a rusty hammer. Uh, can we come up with some different things? Uh, and I don't think management ever got to that point. I think it was people are tired of you guys. You've lost your jobs or you've lost your, your columns. Right. These were business decisions that were made by managers who most of them, I think are no longer at the Buffalo news and were not necessarily longtime Buffalonians or people who worked in the Buffalo market. They made the decisions for reasons that I think made some sense at the time, at least to them. I don't know if the situation played out business-wise the way they hoped it would or thought it would, and in some ways might have went in the other direction. No, it was disastrous. And I know from people at One News Plaza or wherever the address is now in the Larkin building um, who tell me now that it was discussed openly uh, by Mike Connolly and Josh Barnett that it was a major miscalculation. They thought they, they didn't realize that they were going to make these decisions that led to a highly decorated sports department totally collapsing. And in some ways, there's a parallel or, or there's obvious parallels because the same people. Bucky and Sully had their radio show. Bucky left on his own accord before Sully left from his own show for different reasons or had it ended, however that played out. I think that's missed in the market, their insight and opinion and, and having that type of show to veteran newspaper writers with opinions to columnists in sports, a PTI style in Buffalo and with Jerry. So Jerry spent a year not writing about the bills and then came back writing columns for the Niagara Gazette. I just want to add this little snippet because it may not only is it their opinion or their observations, it's their opinion and observations with history, the years of institutional knowledge. Now, Jerry's not from here originally, but he predated the Super Bowl bills. Bucky was born and raised here. Uh, I mean, these guys knew things. And that is one of the things that I think is really missing from most of the coverage uh, around Western New York now about anything is with the exception of a couple people, they don't know names. They don't know what happened 20 years ago. Yeah. And I, I think Mike Harrington still does a pretty good job of that with the sports that he covers or the sports that he covered in the past, but it's not a regular three times a week, you know, daily column situation as it was with Jerry and Bucky. And the point I was trying to make about Sully is that I think his voice was very much missed in his presence in the Bills press box, media room, what have you, the year he was not credentialed and not on the beat. And when he came back writing columns for the Niagara Gazette, I think it filled a void. And those were some excellent columns. And there's a voice he has and insight and experience and knowledge about the Bills that there are columns that really only Jerry can write. And there's a willingness to write that style of column that the very few people have. And there's just fewer columns. There's few that, Chuck Pollock doesn't come to the Bills games and write columns anymore. The columnist job doesn't exist in the same way. There are still columns. Nick Sabato writes some in the Niagara Gazette, but it's less of a part of the Bills coverage. And there's a lot of fans that didn't like Jerry Sullivan and didn't like his tone and didn't like what he said and Bucky the same way. But I remember days when the Buffalo News sent five different people to write columns and they all had strong opinions and strong takes and were based in a lot of knowledge and experience covering the team. And that's missing now. And even if you combine all of the newspapers, I don't think you're getting the same level of commentary and criticism and analysis that you used to get just from 
the Buffalo News not even 10, 15 years ago. That's right. That's right. I mean, Bob DeCesare wrote great columns. Uh, Milt Northrup, great columns. Again, more institutional knowledge lost. Um, Alan Wilson, and you'd see all kinds of, uh, you know, me on occasion. I hated writing columns. I just don't fancy myself a column writer. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, Larry Felzer up until, what, 2001, 2002, Although I think he was kind of mailing it in towards the end. He was just getting paid by the column. He wasn't even on the staff anymore. But yeah, it's uh yeah, commentary just doesn't really exist anymore, with the exception of on radio or on podcasts. It, the, it's not on print. Um, but yeah, that hard ass uh, you know, question asker um isn't there anymore. Now I I mean I fancy myself as uh I'll ask a hard question, but I don't go in there looking for it like some, like some have. And uh, we've had this discussion before, you know, at, uh, uh, Matthew Fairburn and I in the press box, uh, since he's been, uh, we've been covering things together, whether it be Sabres or Bills. We, you know, how much Sully is missed in a press conference or, or Tyler Dunn or, you know, Bucky, of course. Um, you know, it's funny too, you know, I just, we were, we, we reference it all the time that uh, the, the Doug Whaley news conference, Doug Whaley's fateful final news conference in which Bucky Gleason got into him about what is it you do around here. And do you remember back then when that happened, the pushback from fans about how rude it was and again, probably pull his credential, yank his credential. That was one of the more telling interviews or one of the most telling press conferences about, you know, the emperor having no clothes like Doug Whaley didn't do anything. He wasn't privy. Or as he would occasionally say, because he couldn't, he had trouble, you know, uh, keeping his, uh, uh, he, he kept tripping over his words was, uh, I'm not privily uh, to that. Like, and he was trained to say that he was told by Scott Birch told and Mark Preisler, they sat him down beforehand and said, you know, these are the questions you're going to be asked. If they ask you about Rex, you're not privy to it. And uh, it was just an embarrassing organizational display and without Bucky Gleason's pointed questions, uh, I'm sure it still would not have been glowing, but we wouldn't remember it. Uh, and that was, it was, uh, I thought that was a great day for journalism, quite frankly. But at the time, people were just so pissed. Take away his credential for asking tough questions and making Doug Whaley look stupid and making me feel bad about my football team. Yeah, and to use a Sabres example, I mean, think about how many contentious end-of-season press conferences there were with Darcy Regeer or Ted Black and Tim Murray and, and various people over the years. And now uh, John Warrow asked one pointed question to Kevin Adams, and it's still a sore subject for everybody who was in that room and, and several people in the Sabres fan base. Kevin Adams' reaction is a meme or you know, kind of became a meme on Sabres Twitter, and it's just a different climate, and it's different on both sides of it. And I don't think – I think the professional teams and the leagues and the ESPN – I've played a role in making this a different media ecosystem, but I don't think there's teams specifically weeding out the critical coverage and blocking that maybe, you know, Washington commanders when Dan Snyder was there, you know, he was suing publications. If you covered him, they were sued. Uh, yeah. That, I mean, that was an extreme and it wasn't the, the death knell, but it was, uh, it was, a it was part of the, 
the casserole that everyone had to eat when it came to Dan Snyder that eventually became indigestible and they puked him out. Sorry what for taking that metaphor to a certain degree. I haven't seen this in Buffalo. Maybe you have going back a little further in different eras. Um, oh, John the Macy's Tortorella... tried to take away my credential. Sure, exactly. I, oh, Sugar I Ray Leonard to... boxing tried to, I had, we had to go to court so I could cover a fight. John Tortorella is upset with what one Philly based writer, I believe it's a Philly based writer, not a national guy has written about uh, a player that got traded away. And now he's not, I don't know the reporter's name. I should, he's not answering that reporter's questions going forward that happens i've seen that happen elsewhere nationally i can't think of too many examples locally where someone's you know blocked a specific reporter or they won't answer they will answer questions but not from this person because of what they wrote or what they said that's a clown question bro bryce harper once said um yeah they're, they're, that's happened you know where you just you know you black out a a reporter uh, it's usually a player or a coach. It's not a whole team doing it. Um, but yeah, that that certainly happens. But the person doesn't lose his credential. He's still in that locker room. He's still in that press box. He's at the skate. He's at the practice. He's not barred from covering the team. Like fans uh, seem to have that knee-jerk response now about uh, whenever they see something they don't like in the media to that that person's got to lose their credential or their job. Um, Jonah, I had no plan of talking about any of this today. Um, we sketched out a show about basketball and the Sabres and Don Granado. Um, we got time. We can talk about Don Granado next week. Um, but let's get people caught up on basketball here in Western New York, uh, because it is a lull. Uh, the Sabres, uh, are on their, uh, bye week. And the NFL is in that crazy two-week period in between uh, the championship games and the Super Bowl, in which I am already sick of the Chiefs and 49ers. And uh, by the time the ball kicks off next Sunday, I'm sure I will know uh, Joe Tooney's favorite mouthwash and you know what Christian McCaffrey likes for breakfast. Hang on, I got to sneeze. Excuse me. Um, so let's talk basketball. Uh, Canisius, uh, I think, is the most interesting team out of the big four. Canisius men, I, we, you might want to talk about the women's too because there's some things to talk about there, particularly with UB. Um, Canisius at Niagara on Tuesday night, always a big rivalry game. Canisius entering the season as... Uh, one of the better teams, uh, well, as you've talked about, maybe the best team in Western New York uh, in the Jonah Bronstein power rankings. Uh, St. Bonaventure has a big game against ranked Dayton uh, Friday night. That's on ESPN2. And uh, UB uh, has lost seven in a row, two and 18, one of the worst teams in the country. I don't know where you want to start, Jonah, but uh, you know what? Let's start with Canisius. Canisius has some some interesting uh, stuff going on because they are a good team. Reggie Witherspoon just won his 300th game, but they also have some personnel issues with, uh, uh, with some players who I think a lot of Canisius backers were hoping would uh, be big contributors this year, but aren't uh, notably that's uh, Xavier long, the six, seven forward uh, who hasn't played at all. And uh, Taji Stavesky. Uh, who's only played two games. 
Yeah, so well, where's Canisius now? Well, Canisius, we can just rewind it back a little bit. They started the year, picked third in the MAC. There was some buzz and excitement that this would be a winning season. Reggie Witherspoon in the last year of his contract, uh, the implications there, and that they might have a a good season, and how that could affect the future of the program, and and, and but also the present. And in these big four power rankings that, that you like to ask me about, I would have put Canisius probably two behind St. Bonaventure, but there was a point early in the season where you could make the case for them being the best local team because they won at St. Bonaventure and they started well, five and three. They had most of the team back from last season, and there was reason to believe that this could be this could be the year for Canisius in a way. It hasn't played out that way. They've lost seven of the last nine games, while Niagara has won seven of the last nine games. Canisius is going to go to Niagara on Tuesday. That's going to be a good game, I believe, but Niagara would certainly be the favorite and considered the better team having the better season right now in conference. And One of the country's the best three-point shooting teams. Yeah, top 15 in the country in three-point shooting. And one, if you really want to dig in with the basketball, it's going to be an interesting big man matchup with Niagara having seven-footer Harlan, Oviohi, and 6'8", Frank Mitchell on Canisius is averaging a double-double, 14 and 12 in the MAC. And as far as I go back, 17, 18 years, I can't remember two big men from these teams at the same time clashing like that. So that'll be an interesting matchup in the rivalry. But Canisius, they're eight and twelve. They're three and seven in the MAC, ninth place. Obviously, underperforming from the early season expectations. But you mentioned Todd Stavesky is the best player on the team. He plays the first three games, goes down with a lower body injury, was in a walking boots. So you can assume that was a foot ankle type situation. From what I understand, he is healed or is close to healed. Xavier Long's been dressing for games but not playing. So these are players that are not out for the season with their injuries, but it's believed they won't be playing again this season, that they'll be taking medical redshirt seasons, and that will give them another year of eligibility either here at Canisius or at another school. And I don't know if these decisions have been made yet, but with the way Canisius' season is going, where their record is, Reggie Witherspoon's contract situation, um, it's starting to look like a situation where these players who are injured and not playing are saving their eligibility for the transfer portal. And that, you know, not having your best player and another starting player is going to hurt your team on the floor talent-wise. And I think it can affect, you know, chemistry and togetherness and belief that in the team, in the locker room, in the culture of the program, maybe sometimes teams respond to that and play even better, the next man up type thing, when players get injured. But I think it's difficult to do when the injured players aren't rowing in the same boat and, and you know there's still half a season not half a season there's still a month before march to go maybe some of these players will be back in the lineup maybe i don't expect that but maybe they will and canisius could finish the season where they thought they were at the start of the season where outsiders thought they were at the start of the season but at this point it's and they have good guards trey dinkins team Utengel from ukraine is, is having an excellent season they have good players they're a competitive team but they're not the best version of themselves. It's similar to the Bills' defense. I mean, the Bills did a lot of good things on defense and had a good run and a good season, but I never thought they could get all the way without their all-pro linebacker and their all-pro cornerback and Von Miller playing up to his level. And I have doubts about Canisius being a MAC champion caliber team without its best point guard. It's all MAC player, point guard, and another starting player, another good player. So 
you know, Reggie Witherspoon just won his 300th game. Um, we've talked about it before on this podcast about how he should have the job at Canisius pretty much for as long as he wants it, because can, how can Canisius do better than Reggie Witherspoon local guy? I mean, how often does a Jim Barron come along where he's just available and happens to want to play uh, or happen, happens to want to coach uh, in Western New York? Uh, so anyways, we'll get into Reggie in a second, but Todd Stavesky coming from the Spire Academy, which is highly respected um, program. And uh, Xavier Long coming from DC United, the AAU team, which is one of the best in the country year after year. Um, this is a good recruiting class or has been, you know, these are two really good recruits for Reggie. And again, I guess it goes into the whole thing about the portal and the, the how dastardly the portal can be. You get a good recruit and you just that you're getting them ready for the, the bigger school. Um, but is it seems as though, I mean, Reggie's maybe on his game here. I mean, it's in terms of recruiting and being able to get these guys to come to Canisius to begin with, identifying them. Um, the fact that they can't get on the court sucks, but what does it say about where the program might be that at least they got these guys here? Yeah, the Canisius staff. Or what's going on recruited. that they don't that they're here and they just don't want to get on the court? Well, <laughs> Canisius stepped up its recruiting the last couple of years. And also the big win for Reggie Witherspoon and his staff was getting 11 players to come back. Retention is almost as, is more important probably than recruiting these days, or at least on an equal footing. And the Canisius was the best Mac team at retaining its talent this past year, along with bringing in some good recruits a year or two ago. And that was why they were picked where they were and why there was excitement about this team, why I think Reggie thought this was one of his best teams in a number of years. Uh, I want to make a quick note about that Spire Institute in Ohio. I've seen them play one time in Buffalo, and that was with LaMelo Ball on the team and LeVar Ball in the hallway at Villa Maria College signing autographs, and that was an event. But, I mean, LaMelo Ball is an NBA player, and there were – a number of other players, I can think of two or three of the names, and not all of them, who are all at Power 5 schools right now. So that is a talent factory, and you're right. Getting recruits from Spire Institute that work out. You're not getting the 11th or 12th guy that doesn't belong in college basketball. Getting good players are recruiting wins, and then keeping them out of the transfer portal at the beginning was a positive for Canisius. I do think there are signs that this program is moving in the right direction and doing things well they're investing a little more money i believe into the uh assistant coaching pool which helps in recruiting and being a more funded program than they were in recent seasons but the wins and losses in the mac aren't there and that's ultimately where coaches and coaching staffs are judged and there's still time they're still they're midway through the mac season so if Kanisha's finishes strong it changes a lot of these narratives but if they lose seven of nine games again down the stretch like they've done in the last month. It's another lost season. It's a third straight losing season. And I believe, you know, fourth and five years for Reggie Witherspoon. Does Reggie want to keep coaching? Do you think? I believe he does. Although I also won't be surprised if this ends with a mutual parting of ways and a retirement. He's old enough and he has grandchildren. Now I think he'd be content with not coaching, but I believe Reggie still 
inspired to be coaching this team right now. And if he was able to continue coaching Canisius, he would want to do that. And I also think if there was an opportunity to coach somewhere else, he would be open to that as well. What type of school would, would he go to? I mean, just for the sake of conversation, I'm not saying that you, you know, but like when you say to go for to not have success at a school like Canisius, where would Reggie as an assistant or as a head coach still, or. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there's an answer for that because with, with the record that Canisius has had in recent years, I don't know if he would be a candidate that excites another Mac school, another low level division one school. I think there's possibilities. You see Mac coaches a lot who are Mac head coaches. They don't have great records. Chris Casey is an example of this right now. But they go on and become assistants and after a few years end up being head coaches in the league again because Casey's now the coach at Fairfield after that head coach was fired right before the season. I don't anticipate that path happening with Reggie which is why I believe he wants to coach and might still coach, but I don't know where the opportunity is. I don't know yeah. if he would want to do it at a division two or a division three school like Mike McDonald has done and thrive doing that. I mean, Reggie was a great high school coach and I think could still be an asset to a high school program or, you know, a private, well, an AAU. I don't know if he'd go in that route, although that was some of his roots were like that in the nineties with the pale ace program. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds for Reggie Witherspoon at Canisius. I think that's still to be determined, and I don't know what the future would hold for Reggie Witherspoon after Canisius. Much different than when he got let go at UB and he went to coach at Alabama and he went to coach at Tennessee Chattanooga and wanted to stay in the game and wanted to be a head coach again. And you could sort of see the potential for Canisius or another local school to hire Reggie Witherspoon down the line. What I don't see, you know, Buffalo's not hiring him. And Niagara is probably not hiring any coach that used to coach at Canisius and didn't set the world on fire there. And I don't see it happening at St. Bonaventure. So I don't see the same path to another coaching opportunity that Reggie Witherspoon had when he was let go from UB now. I guess it's been 10 years now. Mark Schmidt has St. Bonaventure at 13 and seven overall four and four in the a 10 going into this game, uh, Friday night, uh, at Dayton. Again, that's on ESPN too. Uh, I don't know if you want to, uh, we've been at this for a long time because we had that long divergent path uh, to start this podcast that neither you nor I expected, but you couldn't shut me up. Now you would have been actually would have considered it a favor had you interrupted me at some point to get me back on track. But, uh, what else do we want to say about Big Four basketball? Say, so, by the way, it's a big game Friday night. They're on the road at Dayton. Dayton's top 25 in the country. They're not first place in the A-10 right now, but considered the best team in the A-10. Bonaventure had a big comeback, coming back down 20 points in the first half to beat VCU at home the other night. And 4-4, four and four, one of five teams tied for fourth place in the Atlantic 10 Conference. Bonaventure's a good team that started the year with that aspirations to contend in the A-10 and possibly be in that at-large conversation. The A-10 is looking like a one or a one-and-a-half bid league team. And St. Bonaventure, I don't, they did beat Oklahoma State, but I don't think they got enough wins earlier in the season to really be in that at-large conversation. But they have a high net ranking. They're top 80. They are good enough and playing well enough that a really hot finish puts them close to that conversation. 
And what that means is possibly being an NIT team if they don't make the NCAA tournament, higher seeding in the NCAA tournament if they do win the Atlantic 10. And then just simply the better they play in February in an Atlantic 10 play, the more likely it looks like that they can win the Atlantic 10 and be an NCAA tournament team. And there's no bigger game in that regard than at Dayton, a very difficult place to play, best team in the conference on ESPN2 national television. It isn't a win that I think puts St. Bonaventure in the NCAA tournament, but it puts them a lot closer and a lot more on that bubble if they can win this game tomorrow. And even if they are competitive in a loss, it portends well for how St. Bonaventure might be able to finish this season. How many teams do you think the Atlantic 10 puts into the tournament? I think it'd be one or two. Dayton is a team that if they don't win the Atlantic 10, probably gets in as an at-large bid. Richmond might be that type of team too. So it could be a two-bid league, but I don't think Bonaventure or any of the teams beyond Dayton or Richmond are going to make it as at-large teams. So it could be a one-bid league. It could also be a two-bid league. On the women's side, Jonah, some good things happening uh, at uni- at uh, the University at Buffalo, whereas the men uh, are having a the most forgettable of seasons. You'd have to go back to the Tim Cohane NCAA investigation season probably to find this kind of skid mark. Uh, what about the women? The women are fourth place in the MAC and playing well and have one of the most you know, explosive scores in the country. Chelia Watson, who was uh, a transfer from USC Upstate where coach Becky Burke came. She started her career at Cincinnati with the second transfer, was not allowed to play last year, uh, didn't get a waiver, and is playing this year. Had she played last year, wouldn't be on this year's team and is now the best player on the team, scored 47 points uh, last Saturday at Toledo, which is the highest scoring game in NCAA women's basketball so far this season. She's third in the country in scoring, had, I think, 27 in their win at Ohio last night. So with the roster turnover that they had, the UB women, um, it is rather impressive where they are, fourth in the MAC. And I don't know how far they get in the MAC tournament, but if you're in the top four, I think you're in the conversation, and that's a good place to be, especially here on February 1st. And uh, I know you had some high school notes uh, you wanted to mention. I did want to mention a high school event this week, but just real quick on the women's basketball, I should mention Niagara because Niagara was the team picked to win the MAC and probably the best local women's team. They didn't do quite as well in non-conference play. They had some injuries to their best players. The Parker sisters lost to UB, but they've won four in a row now, just beat Canisius. And that was the first time in, I believe, 15 years that those two teams met with both having a winning record. Canisius women are having their best season in a long time, although they've lost the last two. Niagara women's basketball leads the country in forcing turnovers, getting steals and transition baskets, scoring on the break. So if you like women's basketball, they're an exciting team to watch and they're rounding into form and would not be the favorite anymore in the MAC with Fairfield being unbeaten and how well they're playing, but are, could be that second best team in the MAC and a possibility to win the conference title or go to an NIT is still in play for that Niagara team. How good would Canisius be if they still had Danny Haskell? That's interesting. They'd be better if you added Danny Haskell to the team that they already have. Sissy Aleko, a very good uh, big girl inside and some transfer guards that they brought in. However, if Danny Haskell doesn't transfer, I don't know if they bring in the same transfer guards. And Danny Haskell, who is an excellent player and 
playing well for St. Bonaventure would help the Canisius team, but I don't know if the season trajectory would have gone that much different. And they're playing well. They were up until these last two losses, six and three in the MAC, and and have a chance to finish with a winning record for the first time since 2008. But if they could pick her up at the trade deadline or on the the buyout market midseason, it would you know she is an excellent scorer and shooter that would help that team. Yeah, Danny Haskell from Frank, Franklinville had uh, she had over three thousand points, right? She's the all-time leading scorer in uh, Western York women's basketball. Yes, and now has scored a thousand points in college. She got over that mark as a St. Bonaventure player this year, but scored most of those points in her years at Canisius. Uh, and your so your high school notes, Jonah. Well, this weekend is an event. Starts Friday night and into Saturday. The Center Court Classic at St. Joe's. Um, Center Court, if you don't know Chad Andrews, he keeps a blog and a Twitter presence covering boys basketball in West New York. He's done it for 17 seasons now and is really the local authority on covering these teams. He sees the most games and has that historical institutional knowledge, talks to coaches, and really has an understanding of who the best teams are you know, who's better than who and things like that. And he organizes this event and brings together teams. You know, next month there's Buff State and there's the sectional championships and people do like to go and watch that and see all the best teams play off against each other. But the Catholic schools aren't there. So some of these matchups, Canisius against Niagara Falls, um, Timon against a Rochester team, Victor, that won a state championship last year. Timon was the best team in Western New York, although they lost to Canisius and St. Joe's in their past two games. So I voted Canisius ahead of them in the poll this week. But there are games and matchups and everybody in the same gym in the same day and a half that doesn't happen elsewhere and especially doesn't happen in February. Anything like this is usually a four-team event at the very beginning of the season, and this is six different games over the course of you know two nights and an afternoon, 12 different teams. And this wasn't planned in this way, but uh, something I'm writing about for WIBB.com Uh, Gabe Michael, the St. Joe's coach that uh, died very unexpectedly and surprisingly before the start of the season, was Chad Andrews. Chad calls him his best friend. When they had the first center court classic, it was at Williamsville South where Gabe Michael was the coach at that time. And this was going to be the first year that they had the event at St. Joe's after it had been at Hamburg a number of years. And it was, you know, they were kind of co-hosting it together. And St. Joe's is still very involved in co-hosting this event. So there'll be, you know, tribute and a memorial a bit uh, before St. Joe's plays Amherst on Friday night. So there's that element to the event and also, uh, you know, as good as it gets as far as basketball games, teams, good teams playing each other on neutral floors, and that'll be starting up Friday night, four games on Saturday. If you want to go to it, what time do you get there? Well, also – you have to get the tickets online ahead of time. It's tickets aren't sold out yet. It's expecting that they could sell out and there's three different sessions and they don't really want a lineup for remaining tickets. I don't know. I don't know if I can say that they're not selling tickets at the door, but it's being discouraged. You're supposed to get the tickets online. Uh, maybe if anybody's very interested, they could, or you could check the WIBB story. He was also on our, our television show earlier this year, earlier this week. And there'll be a link there. And maybe we can, if you want, DM me and I can get you the link as well. But there's tickets available for all three sessions if you go online. What that's going to 
lead up to as far as tickets at the door, I don't know. And I would assume that they're going to sell out and you want to get your tickets online if you want to go to these games. All right. Thanks, Jonah. That's a great event. And uh, I like being able to talk about the high school sports uh, whenever we can. I know sometimes that gets lost and uh, it's a shame, but I'm glad you're on here uh, to point out some of these uh, important events. Um, That's a wrap for Tim Graham and friends brought to you by CTBK CPAs and business consultants. Again, I urge you to please subscribe, like comment, uh, rate, do whatever you need to do uh, to engage with Tim Graham and friends. We enjoy it. Um, I've been uh, mixing it up in the comments a little bit. Um, used to be everybody would just send a, a note saying, Hey, I like the podcast. Uh, good job. Now I feel like we finally crossed over because I have people calling me an asshole and, and an idiot. So I think we're finally turning the corner, Jonah, to uh, acceptability. Um, well, we embrace it because I think the YouTube algorithm likes negative comments the same as positive comments. So if you got complaints, right. you know, pour it out. Yeah, blast me if you want. Um, and jo no, I really encourage you to blast Jonah. But if you need to blast me, go ahead. Thanks to everybody out there for watching or listening. Tim Graham and friends brought to you by CTBK CPAs and business consultants. The financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions. We'll